The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of 1 John this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that you can use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together in freedom to worship you this morning. We continue to pray for our nation during this time of war against terrorism. Pray that you would continue to protect us, that even as we continue to hear uh, rumors of threats against various parts of our country, we pray that you would protect us, that you would foil these plots, that you would bring evidence and information to the proper authorities, that they might be able to uh, to stop any uh, further attacks, we pray that you would give uh, wisdom and courage to our leaders, both political leaders as well as uh, military leaders. We pray for the troops in the field that you would give them battle courage and that you would give them wisdom and insight to execute their uh, individual missions. Father, now as we study your word, we pray that we might be mindful of the fact that this is a tremendous privilege to have your word before us to be able to study it freely, openly, and to be able to take these mighty truths that we discover and apply them in our own lives. pray that you would help us to understand these things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 3, verse 3. 1 John 3, 3. 1 John... I believe is one of the most difficult books in the New Testament to interpret. I've covered this before several times, but there are two basic ways in which people approach 1 John. There are those who approach it from the viewpoint that John is describing Christians versus non-Christians. And therefore, they would interpret passages that talk about abiding in Christ as being equivalent to being in Christ, Paul's term of uh, that every believer at the instant of salvation is in Christ. Then there are those, those with whom I would agree, that First John is not written to compare and contrast believers versus unbelievers, 
but is to contrast believers who are abiding in Christ, growing spiritually, walking by means of the Holy Spirit, continuously in fellowship with the Lord, versus those who are in rebellion to Him, those who are living on the basis of their sin nature, those who are not applying the truth. We see this come, coming together in, in a many ways in terms of our understanding of 1 John chapter 3, and there are some difficult verses here. There, no matter who you are, what position you take, there are some unusual statements by the Apostle John in this chapter that the way they're translated, if we take them out of context, context they sound uh, not only confusing but perhaps even contradictory or unrealistic. What I want to do this morning, we need to lay a groundwork for understanding this passage. But before we do that, I want to give an overview of this section. Some of these things you might want to emphasize in your own Bibles, just sort of draw the circle around certain similar words in order to uh, trace the flow of thought. I'm looking primarily at this entire chapter or this entire section beginning in verse 28 of chapter 1 down through the end of chapter 3. The basic command, the the overriding command, sort of the umbrella command that we have to understand here is John is a statement in verse 28, and now little children abide in him. That is the controlling statement for interpreting everything in this section. 1 John 2.28, Now little children, abide in him. Now we have seen in study after study that we've done, from our extensive study in John 15 to studies that uh, we repeated when we got into 1 John uh, chapter 2, verses 2 through 6, that this term abide, which is the Greek word meno, which means to stay, to remain, to abide, that this term is used by our Lord in the upper room discourse and by the Apostle John not as a reference to eternal salvation or being united with Christ at positional truth, but as a term for fellowship. It is a term for the believer who is staying in fellowship, the believer who is walking by means of the Holy Spirit, the believer who is continuing in his path of obedience, uh, learning the word and applying it in his life. So this is the overriding command, and I want you to notice that it is restated in verse 24. Skip down to verse 24. There we read, Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him. Now just as a side note, if abiding in him has to do with salvation, then salvation would be based on keeping his commandments, not faith alone in Christ alone. That is why this is such a crucial issue. Those who hold to a position called lordship salvation tend to interpret this 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 epistle and this chapter as a contrast between believers and unbelievers. The problem with that is that this opens the door to a works salvation. They would say that you don't really know if you are saved unless you live a life of keeping his commandments. And since you don't know in your life whether you're going to have a lifestyle of keeping his commandments or not, you can't really know if you're saved until the day you die. 
it is conceivable that you might live a lifestyle of obedience to a certain point and then turn your back on the Lord during the last few years of your life, and that would indicate that you did not have genuine faith, that you did not have saving faith, and that you were not actually saved. Uh, that is heresy. That is a work salvation. That uh, scriptures clearly teach that we can know right now, today, whether or not our eternal destiny is in heaven or not. Furthermore, they are introducing a phrase into the scripture into the scripture that is not found in the Bible. Never do you find an adjective qualifying faith. You never have a statement in the scripture about anybody having genuine faith or true faith or saving faith. All you have in the scripture is the term faith. Faith is either saving or it's not. You're either believing Christ died on the cross for your sins or you don't. That's all there is to it. When you start, when you hear anybody using those other terms, then to say that you can have a true faith in Christ necessarily and logically implies the opposite. Then you can have a false faith in Christ. What in the world would a false faith in Christ be? That is absurd. And yet that's essentially what they do because they'll go to passages like 1 John chapter 2 where John tells us that many believed on his name because he had performed many signs and Miracles and many believed on his name. And then the next verse it says, but Jesus did not trust himself to them. And they go, aha, see, if, if, if that was genuine faith, if that was true faith, then, then Jesus would trust himself to them. Do you trust yourself to every believer that you know? Well, you're going to be in serious trouble if you do. You see, they were saved, they just didn't know any better yet. They had learned enough to be saved, but they hadn't learned enough about the Messiah to give up their uh, political pretension. See, they were still the crowds, the masses were still looking at Jesus as a political Messiah and not simply a savior Messiah, a suffering Messiah coming at the first advent. So Jesus wasn't going to trust himself to them because they hadn't learned enough yet to not be dangerous. So Jesus wasn't going to trust himself to them to to uh uh, put himself under their their control because they still had a wrong agenda. So this is the problem: is this this distortion of the text ultimately implies a distortion of the message of salvation. So the basic command is given in First John two twenty eight and echoed in verse twenty four, and that is to abide in Christ. In between, we have some unusual statements. I want you to notice, too, that abide, the concept of abide, is often linked with the prepositional phrase, in him. We abide in him, John says. Now, that would imply that there are some places, I think, where we have the phrase, like in verse 5, in him. We don't have the use of the verb abide, but abide is clearly implied. Whenever you see the word, uh, the phrase, in him, in this section, He's talking about abiding in him. We can't separate the two. Now, he says, John says several things about abiding. For example, in 1 John 2, verse 5, John states that we know we are in him, or abiding in him, by keeping his commandments. Now, if, if in him, abiding in him is salvation, then that would imply that we know that we're saved by keeping his commandments, and that would be a work salvation. But we know that we are abiding in him, that is, in fellowship with him, because we keep his commandments. So obedience, consistent obedience to the mandates of Scripture is 
It's what characterizes the person who is abiding. Furthermore, in 1 John 2, 6, John said, the one who abides in him walks as he walked. That is, he lives like Jesus lived. Well, what exactly does that mean? And when we studied that, we, we saw that not only does that have to do with the, uh, with external obedience, but it has to do with the means by which Jesus lived. He lived his life in dependence upon God the Holy Spirit. And the believer is to walk by the Holy Spirit as Jesus walked by the Holy Spirit. And if we do that, Galatians 5 tells us that the Holy Spirit will produce fruit in, fruit in us, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. And this is the character of Jesus Christ. So we walk by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will produce in us the character of Christ. Furthermore, John says that no one who abides in Jesus sins. This is in verse 6 of chapter 3. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Well, does that mean that the believer can live a sinless life? If abiding in him is salvation, then that would say that whoever is a believer doesn't sin. Yeah, that seems to be a contradiction to what he said in, in 1 John 1, 7, that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So John clearly states that the believer can and does sin. However, in verse 6, abiding then must mean something more than simply being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. It must imply an additional kind of relationship with Jesus, and when that relationship is in effect, we don't sin. But once we do sin, we're out of fellowship. Now, in verse 24, again, John states that the one who abides in him keeps his commandments. So there is a level of obedience, a level of righteousness that characterizes abiding in Christ. Furthermore, let's look at some things that are said within the context of our specific passage between 3.1 and 3.9. In verse 3, it says, everyone who has this hope in him, that's a believer who has reached a level of spiritual adolescence and understands his future destiny in heaven and has a confident expectation of that destiny where he will not be ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ. We read there, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So to understand what it means to purify ourselves, we have to understand the comparative there, that it is as Jesus is pure. Furthermore, in verse 5 we read, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. So there's walking in purity, there is no sin in verse 5. Furthermore, in verse 6, we have the statement, Whoever uh, sins has neither seen him nor known him. We are to practice righteousness. Whoever abides in him does not sin. And then in verse 7, the statement, who, He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Notice we are to be pure as he is pure. There's not to be sin as there's no sin in him. We are to be righteous as he is righteous. And then in verse 9 we're told, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed abides in him. Literally, uh, that should be stated as abiding in him. His seed, that is the seed uh, 
of Christ in terms of our regeneration. It's a picture of birth, of regeneration abides in him, the believer. So again, it emphasizes the concept of not sinning. Now, that seems to be a contradiction. It seems to be, is this an unrealistic command? Is this somehow somehow uh, John getting confused here that he forgets what he said in one seven that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves? So we have to look at this very carefully in order to understand exactly what is going on here because John almost seems to be hitting the high points it almost seems like he's just summarizing something that he's already taught in detail to this congregation, that they know what he's talking about. They have a frame of reference, and as it were, he's just using sort of almost a verbal shorthand to hit them with the basic commands, reminding them of what he's taught them already. And uh, we have to understand that background, which I think is the upper room discourse, before we can fully grasp what he says here. I don't mean we're going to go back and review the upper room discourse. We already know that. But that needs to be the frame of reference for understanding what is said in verses uh, 1 through 9 in chapter 3. But the background for this, doctrinally, is the purity of Christ. We are to be pure and we are to be purifying ourselves as He is pure. We are to be practicing righteousness as He is righteous. So that takes us to the doctrine, what is called the doctrine of the impeccability of Jesus Christ. The doctrine of the impeccability of Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at this under two headings. First of all, the reality of his purity. And second, the means of his purity. So we'll break the doctrine of impeccability down into these two uh, categories. Point number one, let's define our terms and give you an example of how impeccability is spelled so you can get it right. Impeccability refers to the sinlessness of Christ. If you want to have one word to summarize it, it's sinlessness. Impeccable means sinless. It refers to the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. And a formal definition would read, impeccability is that doctrine of Christology, that is the study of the theology related to Christ, that doctrine of Christology which recognizes the fact that during the entire course of the dispensation of the Messiah, between the time of our Lord's incarnation and his death on the cross, our Lord Jesus Christ did not sin, though he was tempted in his humanity, and the temptations are real. Now, last time I made the statement that we are uh, tempted from our sin nature. And that's true for us since the fall of Adam. We are tempted internally from our sin nature, but there is an external temptation that comes, and that is a test, and we'll have to break that down in the course of our study. But the first point here is simply the defining the term, and that is that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life. The term impeccability comes from the Latin root peccare, P-E-C-C-A-R-E, which means to sin. So impeccable means sinless. It's that doctrine of Christology which recognizes the fact that during the entire course of the dispensation of the Messiah, 
that is, between the time of the Lord's incarnation and his death on the cross, our Lord Jesus Christ did not sin at all, though he was tempted in his humanity and the temptations were real. Second point, in church history, this doctrine has never been challenged. It has always been affirmed since the earliest days of the church. Even the heretics in the early church did not challenge this doctrine. It wasn't even challenged by the rationalists in the 16th century. They all understood that the Bible clearly teaches the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. Third, in the Middle Ages, further understanding of this doctrine developed the terminology that is often used, posse non peccari and non posse peccari. These are two Latin phrases. The first one means able not to sin, and the second phrase means not able to sin. Was Jesus Christ simply not able to sin, or was he able not to sin? That was the debate. And the answer is, in the last sentence on the overhead, in Christ's deity, he was not able to sin. Deity cannot sin. God is immutable. In his deity, he was immutable. He could not change. Therefore, he was not able to sin. But in his humanity, he was able to sin. But in his life, he was able not to sin. He did not sin at all. He was tempted. The temptations were real, but he did not sin. So we say that in his deity he was not able to sin, but in his humanity he was able not to sin. He faced every category of testing and temptations, but without sin. So that brings us to the third, or my numbering is off here, that brings us to what should be the fourth point. Fourth point is that the doctrine of impeccability of Christ is related to understanding the nature and reality of his temptations. See, temptation is one of those funny subjects that we often get confused over, so we're going to have to break it down a little bit. The doctrine of the impeccability of Christ is related to understanding the nature and reality of his temptations. These are clearly stated in Scripture. Hebrews 4.15 states, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. See, the problem is that when we think of temptation, we think, unfortunately, of some sort of internal attraction to that sin. In fact, our view of temptation, the common view most people have of temptation, that that if you say you're tempted, you've already sinned. Because the temptation has drawn you, you've already attracted, you already want to do that. It has a more of a subjective emphasis to it. But the Greek word that is used here, uh, perazo, means both to test and to tempt. Because you see, a temptation is in fact a test. So we should translate it the one who has been tested. And here's the difference. If this represents your soul, and in your soul you have self-consciousness, mentality, volition, emotion, and conscience, you also have in your flesh a sin nature. 
Now, Adam did not have a sin nature. Adam was created perfect as God is perfect. He was created in the image of God, so he had perfect righteousness, and he did not have a sin nature. But he had a test, and that test was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the test hung on the tree and was the fruit of the tree, and he was to not eat of the tree. God told him, the day you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will certainly die. And so it was a test of his volition. Is he going to be positive and trust God and obey God, or is he going to be negative? So the test is objective. It was outside of him, and it was hanging on a tree, and it was a test as to whether or not he would he would obey. There's nothing in him that gave him an attraction or affinity or swayed him in that direction. But after he fell, he got a sin nature. And now, and this is our problem, is not only is there the objective test, but there is also an internal attraction or draw towards the sinful act or sinful thought or sinful um, sinful word. And we are drawn, there is something in our nature that is attracted to the sin, and so we are drawn there, and that is the subjective aspect, which we sometimes emphasize when we talk about temptation. We have to draw a distinction between the objective test, which for us I call the occasion for sin. And for us, the test is not only what are we going to do with the objective test, but also how are we going to handle that attraction in our own sin nature. We have circumstances arise, and our sin nature is drawn to respond a certain way, and that's a test. Are we going to follow our sin nature, or are we going to apply doctrine? Now, in Jesus' circumstance, as in Adam's, the issue, they did not, neither Adam nor our Lord Jesus Christ had to deal with the internal attraction of sin. So we have the passage that Jesus was tested in all things as we are. That doesn't mean that every circumstance, every individual test was faced by him, but he faced every category of test, much more so than any of us ever will. He passed with flying colors, and he did not sin. Furthermore, Hebrews 7.26 states, For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, and the word for innocent is akakos. Now, notice that I have the uh, transliterated the Greek up on the screen, and we have two words there, akakos and amiaino. That a prefix in the Greek is a negative. That's like un is in English. It negates it. Kakos is the word for evil. So it is the complete absence of any form of evil or sin in Jesus Christ. He was undefiled. Miaino is a word that is often used of that which is defiled, and it has to do with... Um, uh, with the uh, latrine system of the ancient world, that uh, frequently in the ancient world, if you uh, after you mucked out the stables or mucked out the outhouse, uh, you were defiled. That's what miaino meant. You got uh, you got the stuff all over you, and uh, that's a great picture of what sin is. 
And so uh, the person who is defiled, when he uses the word meino, it's a very picturesque term to indicate how sin affects us. So when we have the word akakos and amiaino, it means that Jesus Christ is pure. He is perfectly righteous. There was no sin found in him at all. So we should have a high priest who is holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. But he is that because he passed the tests in his humanity. Now, the background from this, this should be point five. Remember, my numbering system's off. Point five, the Old Testament precedent was the type of the lamb that was without spot or blemish. The Old Testament, remember, the sacrificial system, whether it involved a lamb or whether it involved a, a bullock or a goat, they were to be without spot or blemish. They had to be tested. They had to be evaluated. They would take the lamb for Passover, and they would have to isolate it, and they would observe it, and they would make sure that there was no spot or blemish and that it was not ill before it could be uh, be available for the sacrifice. The same is true for Jesus Christ, and that uh, typology was fulfilled in his life. He was viewed for three years during his public ministry, and he was without sin. Exodus 12.5 is the type, Your lamb shall be without blemish. This refers to the original Passover lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male of the first year, you shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. Second, he's Exodus 29.1, and this is the thing that thou shalt do unto them to hallow them, to minister unto me in the priest's office, take one bullock and two rams without blemish. Furthermore, in John 1.29, John the Baptist said, when he saw Jesus coming unto him, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. He is specifically relating Jesus to the Old Testament type of the Lamb that was without spot or blemish. And then in 1 Peter 1.19, we're told that we've been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Jesus Christ was completely uh, sinless. Then we come to point number six. Boy, is my numbering system off in this thing. This is really point six. Got to make a few changes in my notes here. Point six. The background. There are five subpoints to this. Jesus had to demonstrate as a man that he could pass the test Adam failed. That's the analogy. It is not that he has to pass the test that you and I have because we have a sin nature. But he had to pass the test that Adam failed because he is the second Adam. He is the ideal man. And by passing the same category of tests again and again that Adam failed, he qualifies as the representative for our sin. The first point is a subcategory A, subpoint A. The first Adam was both temptable and peckable. That means he was able to be tempted and able to sin. The first Adam was both temptable and peckable. In the Garden of Eden, he could and was tempted, and he was capable of sinning through the use of his own volition in response to that temptation. Like the last Adam, he is tempted from the outside. It is a test. Adam did not have a sin nature. There was nothing inside Adam that was attracting or drawing him to sin or uh, 
causing him to sin. See, that's the doctrine of total depravity, is we are born with a bent towards sin that we can't fight. We are born enslaved to sin. There was only one, one way Adam could sin, and that was by eating the forbidden fruit. Second some point is a reminder that the word for temptation in Greek is parazo, which means both to test and to tempt. Adam was tested in the garden. The problem that we always run into in understanding this, this is sub-point C, is that we want to read into temptation the idea of being predisposed to something, being attracted to something. Jesus is not tempted in that way. He is not drawn to something. He is not predisposed to something from an internal predisposition to sin called a sin nature. It is an external test, but that doesn't make it any less real or any less of a difficulty. See, James uses the word tempt in that secondary subjective sense in James 1, verses 14 and 15. There we read, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. That focuses on the response of the sin nature that is drawn to a particular behavior pattern or mental attitude sin, when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death, and that's temporal death or carnal death. So our conclusion is that pyrazo in Hebrews 4.15, must refer to an external test, just like Adam's test related to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Jesus is going to duplicate Adam's test, but Jesus is going to succeed, whereas Adam failed. And by succeeding, Jesus is qualified then as the second Adam to go to the cross and die on the cross as a substitute for our sins. Jesus Christ, in summary, was pure. Now, if we are to be pure as he is pure, we have to understand how he did that in his humanity. Point number five, or this should be point number seven, actually. Point number seven. The last Adam is Jesus Christ in hypostatic union. Now, we have to understand the whole concept of the hypostatic union. So we have the definition up on the overhead. The hypostatic union describes the union of two natures, divine and human, in the one person of Jesus Christ. Now, let me just talk about this for a second. I want to break this definition down. There are two natures united, not two persons. We're not talking about somebody with a multiple personality problem. There are two natures. Now, one nature is undiminished deity. The other nature is true humanity, just as Adam was true humanity. See, you and I are fallen humanity. We are distorted humanity because of sin. We are not true humanity. We have been warped. And one of the Hebrew words I went over the other night in Daniel for sin is the idea of being bent out of shape. See, we are distorted from the original uh, pattern that Adam had. Adam was cre- created in the image and likeness of God, but because of sin, that image and likeness is passed on, but it is distorted by sin. So we're all warped. But Jesus is true humanity, and so these two natures 
are united together at the incarnation in one person. Now, there are times when we speak about the fact that Jesus did something in his humanity or he did something in his deity. But the problem with that kind of language is it almost makes it sound like he's a split personality. Whatever he does, he does as one person. We have to remember that when Jesus is on the cross, there's one person on the cross suffering for our sins. The question has come up, how can deity be how can his deity have been separated from God the Father? Well, it's not ontologically separated. By that I mean in terms of its essence, he is not essentially in his core being separated from the Father. He is judicially separated. It is impossible for his deity to be essentially separated from the Father. He said, "I and the Father are one." That is an unbreakable unity. But it was judicially separated during that time when sin was poured out on him. The one person of Jesus Christ suffered. Now, that does not mean that he, that he, the deity suffered, because deity can't suffer. But the person suffered. We also speak of the fact that Jesus did certain things in his humanity. And more accurately speaking, he did certain things that demonstrated that he was truly a man, truly human. He thirsted. He was hungry. He was weary. All of these indicate that that he was truly a human being and suffered in many ways physically as a man does, as any human being does. And this is evidence of the fact that he is truly human. Furthermore, there are other things that Jesus did that demonstrated that as part of his nature, he was true undiminished deity. For example, he changed the uh, water into wine. There were other uh, things that he did, healings, that evidenced the fact that he was God and only God could do that. He forgave sins. Only God can forgive sins. This indicated that Jesus was fully God. But there were many other things that he did in terms of living life and dealing with the problems and issues of life, dealing with the sufferings of life, dealing with the testings, that in his humanity, Jesus did not rely on his deity to solve those problems, but he operated as a true human being and operated by means of the Holy Spirit. We'll get to that by the time we're through, but this is how Jesus is able to maintain his purity during the incarnation in terms of his humanity. Remember, his deity is plus R, but his humanity is tested because it has to demonstrate through all the testings that it is plus R, that he passes the test that Adam failed so that to qualify himself to go to the cross to die as our substitute. So in terms of defining the hypostatic union, the term hypostasis refers to, a nat- to two natures, and it's the union of these two natures, divine and human, in the one person of Jesus Christ. These natures are inseparably united. They are united. But what do we mean by that unity? See, if you take, um, uh, you unite a couple of substances. Let's say you get up in the morning, you have a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, and then you pour your pour a little cream in there, they're united, but they're mixed. 
But this isn't a, a mixing of the two natures. The natures are inseparably united without loss or mixture of separate identity. See, there is no blending back and forth where deity crosses over to humanity or humanity to deity. There's no cross-pollinization of uh, characteristics. Because if deity flowed over into the humanity side or humanity into the deity side, then humanity would no longer be true humanity and the deity would no longer be true deity. And he has to maintain true humanity in order to die on the cross as a substitute for mankind. A man must die for men. Let's go back to our definition. These natures are inseparably united without loss or mixture of separate identity, without loss or transfer of properties or attributes. The union is personal and eternal, so we have to maintain the fact that they are united and one. There is no loss of identity. There is no loss of deity, loss of anything human. There is no mix of properties or attributes that they are not shared one to the other. But the union is personal and eternal. That means Jesus Christ today is still a union of true humanity with undiminished deity, and he will be a union of true humanity with undiminished deity for all eternity. So he is, uh, Jesus is undiminished deity and true humanity in one person forever. So we have to deal with him in terms of that being as one person, but recognizing that he has two natures that don't mix or overflow into one another. Point number eight. As deity, Jesus was not temptable and he could not sin. As deity, Jesus was not temptable and he could not sin. We know this from James 1.13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. See, this is the idea of pyrazo as that subjective temptation. That's how James uses that term. Actually, he uses it both ways, and you have to look at the context to see which nuance is being emphasized. Let no man say when he is being tempted, this is that internal subjective attraction to sin, that I am being attracted to sin by God. For God cannot be attracted to evil, neither does he attract or try to draw or trap any man into sin. That's the that's sort of the essence of what that verse is saying. So in his deity, Jesus could not sin, but in his humanity... He has the potential of sin. He is temptable. There is a real, genuine test going on. He is temptable, and he could sin. That was possible. Otherwise, it would not have been a genuine test. Point number nine. This is point number nine. Jesus passed... Bad spelling there. That should be P-A-S-S-E-D. I was typing this out in a hurry early this morning. Jesus passed every test, and during his first advent, he was temptable, but did not sin. He was temptable, but impeccable. That means he was perfect. He remained perfect. He never sinned. 
He passed every test, every category of test, and was tested in ways far beyond anything that you or I ever encountered, but he did not sin. And we have to ask the question, what enabled him to do that? What was the means by which he endured that testing? Point eight then, or point ten rather, our Lord Jesus Christ during his first advent was non posse picari, that means not able to sin in his deity, and he was posse non picari, which means able not to sin in his humanity. The humanity of Christ was temptable but able not to sin. He resisted sin, he did not sin, he stayed on positive volition and was completely and 100% obedient to the Father throughout the incarnation. The temptations was were real, but our Lord was able not to sin. And that brings us to point 11, which is the conclusion. In his humanity, Jesus Christ faced every category of testing that human being will that any human being will face many times over. Yet he refused to succumb to these external temptations by reliance upon God the Holy Spirit. This demonstrates the unique spiritual life and soul fortress that was provided for us by God. This is the spiritual life that is pioneered by Jesus Christ. See, when Jesus Christ was on the earth in the incarnation, there's something different. That is that he is indwelt and filled with God the Holy Spirit. That had never happened before in history. Now, somebody might say, well, why didn't that happen in the Old Testament? That's not fair. Well, let's stop a minute and look at this dispensationally and related to the angelic conflict. In eternity past, Satan fell. And the issue in Satan's fall is whether or not the creature can live successfully independent from God. Can the creature be independent from God and be successful? Now, God is going to condemn Satan and the fallen angels in eternity past, but apparently there was some challenge on their part as to whether or not God had really given him an adequate opportunity to prove that he could be God. And so we have human history. Now, in each dispensation or era of human history, I think God is demonstrating in a different way that the creature cannot operate independently of God. So that in the Old Testament, you have the age of the Gentiles and the age of the Jews. In the age of the Jews, there is, I mean, in the age of the Gentiles, there was absolutely no divine assistance whatsoever, and as far as we know from Scripture, there was very little, if any, uh, special revelation. And then man is a complete failure, as evidenced by both the flood and the episode at the Tower of Babel. And at that point, God calls out a new and begins a new work through Abram, Genesis chapter 12. And there's going to be more specific revelation. So you have a higher degree of, of revelation, plus by Mount Sinai you have the giving of the Mosaic Law. So you have external aids for man that weren't present before. Still not enough. Man is still a failure and ends up, and the Jews end up in idolatry and in legalism by the time Christ comes at the first coming. 
So at the first advent, Christ comes. He's rejected as Messiah by the Jews. And then God says, okay, I'm going to step it up another notch, and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So now in the church age, it is going to be marked by the filling of the Holy Spirit and, and excuse me, by the, first of all, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit. So there's going to be another level of divine enablement. Now it's not just external through revelation, but it is internal through the internal aid so that they can learn it better through the Holy Spirit and they can apply it better. But the bottom line is, by the time you get to the end of the church age, the church is going to be apostate and a failure for the most part. Once again, God is demonstrating it's got to be done 100% God's way for there to be any success. The creature cannot be successful with the slightest dependence upon his own creaturely ability. So the church age ends, and then there will be the final... Uh, time of Satan's wrath on Israel and the tribulation. And then in the millennial kingdom, you have perfect environment. You have the new covenant in effect where every man knows in his heart the law, and it's not necessary for anybody to teach one another. Every believer has, has the Holy Spirit at a greater measure than they do now. There's no external problems in terms of a fallen world because the curse is being rolled back. Uh, everybody's a believer. You have a personal uh, rule of Jesus Christ on the earth, and yet, nevertheless, at the end of the millennium, even with almost, you could mark it down this way, you have 0% aid in the Gentiles, you have 20% divine help in the Jews, you have Jewish age of Israel, you have 80% during the church age, you have 99% in the millennium. But in the millennium, people are still born with a sin nature, and at the end of the millennial kingdom, there's still going to be a number of people who reject Christ, who follow Satan and follow him in the last Gog uh, revolution at the end of the millennial age. Bottom line is God is teaching that unless the creature is 100% dependent upon God and 100% oriented to divine authority, there can be no success. And that's, that's what Jesus demonstrates in his life and why he is and remains impeccable. So the first 11 points that we have looked at focus on the means, I mean, the reality of his purity. We are to be pure as he is pure. And he did that by living inside this soul fortress that we've studied so many times before that has as its foundation the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's what we have here in the diagram, why the foundation stones here are the filling of the Holy Spirit. That is the bottom line for the spiritual life. And we have to be in fellowship in, that's inside that fortress, we, that's the position of abiding in Christ and is based on the filling of the Holy Spirit and walking by means of the Holy Spirit. And that's the second category of the doctrine of impeccability we'll study this morning, the means of his purity. How did Jesus in his humanity withstand the temptation? How was he able to pass all these tests? He did it to demonstrate to us that there is a special ability that God has given him. He doesn't do it by relying on his deity. He's not uh, withstanding the temptation as God. He's withstanding it as a man. And so he is pioneering a new way of the spiritual life, which is based on the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. This is prophesied in the Old Testament in Isaiah 11, verses 2 and 3. Isaiah 42, 1, and Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. For example, in Isaiah 
11.2, we read, And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And here we have the Spirit of the Lord characterized in terms of his ministry, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see nor make a decision by what his ears hear. So Jesus is going to rely and live his life in dependence upon God, the Holy Spirit. That's what it meant by that last phrase. He will not judge by what his eyes hear nor make a decision by what his ears hear. He is going to be reliant on God, the Holy Spirit, not his own experience. Isaiah 42.1, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, that servant is a reference to the Messiah, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. This is a totally new thing. Now, the, um, Isaiah is not prophesying anything about the uh, church age, but he is prophesying about the key characteristic in the life of the Messiah. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This was quoted by Jesus Christ in Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And when Jesus read it in the synagogue, he stopped He stopped there halfway through verse 2 because the day of vengeance of our God doesn't was not fulfilled at the first coming. That relates to the tribulation and the events just prior to the second coming. So the ministry of God the Holy Spirit to the Messiah was prophesied in the Old Testament. That's point number one. Point number two, the ministry of God the Holy Spirit supplied an enabling ability. That Once again, this isn't this kind of metaphysical infusion of power. It's not getting some kind of electric uh, shock, some kind of electric charge that gives him a special ability that somehow elevates him over the sin so that he can hurdle these uh, these temptations by this uh, extra strength. The term power doesn't refer to strength in the sense of force, but it refers to an ability given on the basis of truth. Once again, we see this connection between between God the Holy Spirit and the revelation of truth. Remember in the scriptures, Jesus said, You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free in John 8:32. Furthermore, he said, prayed to the Father in John 17:17, 17, 17, Sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. And then in that same upper room discourse, he had taught that the Holy Spirit would come and guide them into all truth. In John 14:17, again in John 15:26, and then in John 16:13, he said, "But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and will disclose to you what is to come." In other words, he is called the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of truth because he discloses truth, and it is the truth that enables us to live the spiritual life. It is truth because it, the power is in the fact that it is aligned to reality, not distorted by sin or human ability. And so on the basis of the Holy Spirit, we are able to come to a true understanding of Scripture and a true understanding of reality. And when our lives conform to that reality, 
part of which is the fact that Jesus freed us from slavery to sin, then we can stay, continue living inside that soul fortress, walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, this is why Jesus was sanctified in John 17:19. he said, and for their sakes I sanctify myself. He went through this testing process to sanctify himself, that is to purify himself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. By making this statement in John 17:19, he is clearly affirming the fact that he lived his life the way he did, surmounted the tests, and, and passed the tests in order to provide a model or pattern for the believer in the church age. That's point number two, that the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, supplied an enabling ability for Jesus to live in his humanity, and that ability is related to the understanding and application of Bible doctrine. Point number three, the ministry of God the Holy Spirit is the same ministry available to the believer today in the soul fortress under the name filling of the Holy Spirit and walking by the Holy Spirit. This is the same ability that Jesus Christ had, the same ability that gave him the the power to I have victory in the test and not to succumb to sin is available to each and every believer from the instant of salvation. Point number four, it was that walking by the Holy Spirit that enabled Jesus to maintain his purity. He was consistently dependent upon God the Holy Spirit. Point number five, this is exemplified in Jesus' testings in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. And notice, we don't have time to look at it now, but if you look at the the testing of Jesus in the wilderness, there are three ways in which he is tested by Satan. His response in each of those temptations was to respond by the correct use and application of the Word of God. That's the connection. It is the Holy Spirit enabling us through the learning and application of Bible doctrine because it is the Word of God that has power because it's the truth. And even though Satan misquoted Scripture, Jesus corrects him and quotes the Scripture back to him uh, correctly. So Matthew 4 gives us the uh, example of how we have that freedom to uh, overcome testing and to be victorious in, in testing is through the application of the Word of God. Furthermore, point number six, Jesus operated in his humanity in relation to testing and fulfilling his humanity-related objectives in the power of the Holy Spirit. He didn't do everything in the power of the Holy Spirit. Like I said, he did some miracles to demonstrate he was fully God. But when it came to living life, dealing with the testing, dealing with the pressures of humanity, dealing with, with the tests related to sin, he handled every category, every situation by reliance upon the Holy Spirit and applying Bible doctrine. And in that, he sets the precedent for the spiritual life of the church age. The spiritual life of the church age is not found in the Mosaic Law. It is found in how Jesus Christ lived his spiritual life during the dispensation of the Messiah, during the time of the Incarnation, when Jesus was first in hypostatic union. This is seen in a number of passages. Matthew 12:18. 
Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Furthermore, Jesus stated in Matthew 12:28, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So he indicates there that some of his miracles, for example, casting out demons, were done by the Holy Spirit. Not all of them, though. Luke 4:14. Uh, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues, and was praised by all, and this is when he quotes the passage from Isaiah chapter 61, that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to uh, proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who were downtrodden. So Jesus operated in his humanity in reliance upon God the Holy Spirit. Finally, point seven, Jesus maintained his purity and established a system for every believer to live in purity. And that purity, then, is possible only when we are abiding in him. That's what pulls it together. When we go back now and we look at 1 John chapter 3, And John says that we are to purify ourselves as he is pure. He purified himself by walking consistently by God the Holy Spirit. So the way we purify ourselves, as I said last time when looking at passages in Peter and in James, that term purify is always related to two things, the Holy Spirit and learning and applying the Word of God. So that's exactly what Jesus demonstrated in living his spiritual life. Reliance upon God the Holy Spirit and applying the Word of God to surmount every test. Furthermore, when we get to verse 5, we're going to see that in Him there is no sin. When we are abiding in Him, when we're staying in fellowship, we don't sin. Now we have to connect that, and we'll connect that with Galatians 5.16. Remember when we studied that, the command there is to walk by means of the Spirit, and it will be impossible to fulfill the lust of the flesh. When we're walking by the Spirit, we can't sin. It's impossible. That's what it says. It's a double negative in the Greek plus a subjunctive mood for uh, not being able to. And that indicates impossibility. What has to happen before we can sin is we have to use our volition to stop walking. Once we use our volition to stop walking and we're out of the soul fortress, then we sin. But while we're in the soul fortress, while we're in fellowship, while we're abiding with Christ, we don't sin. That's what John says in verse 6, Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. That has to do with learning about Jesus Christ and learning how he lived his spiritual life. Well, we'll come back next time and continue our study in First John, but now we have laid the doctrinal foundation. We have to understand that Jesus was impeccable and how he maintained his impeccability in order to understand how we are to be pure as he is pure, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word, that your word instructs us instructs us in how things actually are. We know who we are, and we understand our problems and the solution to our problems only because of the revelation of your word. 
Father, we pray for anyone this morning who's here who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. All you need to do right where you sit is to put your faith in Christ. It's not a matter of morality. It's not a matter of church attendance. It's not a matter of ritual. It's simply a matter of what are you trusting for your salvation. Are you trusting your own intellect? Trusting your own power, your own ability, your own morality? Are you trusting in what God says? God says there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we have studied today, that they might, this doctrine might motivate us and challenge us to remain in Christ, abide in Christ, and continue, continuously walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.